This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Sam, Micah, Caleb, Noah, and Amara. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question. And at the end, we'll wrap things up with a few fun questions. Let's get started. We'll begin with our serious questions. This time, all three questions in one way or another relate to Christmas. The first one is from Sam, who asks, Why do we light candles for Advent? Now, at Grace, when the Christmas season is approaching, we have this intermediate period of time that begins in late November or early December called Advent, and it's this period of four weeks prior to Christmas. And each week, we light another candle on the Advent wreath. So the question is, why do we do that? So at Grace, we light these candles right at the beginning, actually before our worship service begins, so prior to the call to worship. Uh, That reflects a little bit the fact that lighting Advent candles is not a biblical command related to worship. It's more of a tradition that we've adopted because it, it helps us do something that we think is important, which is keep track of what we might call uh, redemption time or, or God's timing in his plan of salvation. Like the church calendar itself, Advent gives us a way of remembering that God works in history. He works over time. Now, during Advent, the, the key emotion that we're feeling is longing. We are longing for the return of Jesus in the same way that people longed for the coming of Jesus before his birth. So as we light those candles week after week, as more candles are lit and we feel the closeness of Christmas, that sense of anticipation is something that that helps to remind us that we are also living in hope. We're living in anticipation. We are waiting for Jesus's return. And the season of Advent can be a good way to connect with that longing. So that's the reason why we light candles for Advent. The next question is from Micah, who asks, was Jesus actually born on Christmas Day? Now, because we celebrate Jesus' birthday on Christmas Day, it would be natural to assume that he must have been born on December 25th. And since our calendar is divided between uh, B.C. and A.D., it would be natural to assume that Jesus was born in, you know, 1 A.D. But actually, the Bible doesn't tell us the actual day that Jesus was born. In fact, it doesn't even tell us the actual year that Jesus was born. So as a result, scholars have to do a little bit of guesswork. So they look at the events in the gospel accounts, and they try to pin down when those things happened, although... That can be hard because 2,000 years of history have passed since then. But they do their best to figure it out. And and most scholars 
actually believe that Jesus was born a, a little bit before 1 AD, so in a weird way, uh, before Christ, Christ was born. But uh, that's just the way it works out. It really depends, though, on how you date some of the events in the narrative. Usually people believe that Jesus, when he began his earthly ministry, was 33 years old, and that seems to have taken place in the late 20s AD. So that gives you a little bit of a sense for the year that he was born. But as far as the time of year, that's actually really difficult. So there are people who argue, based on some of the 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 evidence related to the seasons for uh, keeping sheep and that sort of thing, that it is actually plausible that Jesus was born in December. But I think the best way to think about why we celebrate Jesus' birthday on December 25th is to think about national holidays, something like President's Day or what have you, where we know that the individual wasn't born on that particular day, but we've chosen to celebrate on that day, make that day the holiday. And that's similar to what we've done at Christmas. So on December the 25th, we don't believe Jesus was actually born on that day, but that is the day where we commemorate the birth of Jesus, which changed the world. Now, our last serious question comes from Caleb, and this involves a little bit of Latin. Caleb wants to know, what does in excelsis Deo mean? Now, that is a Latin phrase. Latin was the language that the Romans spoke, but it's not the language that the Bible was written in. The New Testament was actually written in Greek, but this is a phrase from the Bible. Now, it might be most familiar to you around Christmas time from a carol that we sing, Angels We Have Heard on High, because the chorus of that carol includes the words in excelsis Deo. But that actually leaves out an important part of the quote. The whole phrase is not in excelsis Deo, it's Gloria in excelsis Deo. And you really need all of those words because Gloria in excelsis Deo is Latin for glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest is what the angels sing in Luke's gospel in chapter 2, verse 14, at the birth of Jesus. So when we sing those words at Christmas time, we are echoing the song of the angels who are celebrating the birth of Jesus by saying, Glory to God in the highest. Now it's time for the big question. Today, the big question comes from Noah. Noah asks, God is everywhere, right? But what if God decided he didn't want to be somewhere? What would happen to the place that God went away from? Could God do that? Noah's question raises a really important theological idea. Yes, God is everywhere, and the word that we use to describe that everywhereness of God is omnipresence. Omni meaning everywhere, and presence meaning presence. So God is presence everywhere. Now, omnipresence is not to be confused with omnipotence, which is a similar kind of word, but where omnipresence means being everywhere, 
Omnipotence means being all-powerful. So God has limitless power, and God's presence is limitless. Now, in the history of philosophy, philosophers have always liked to come up with paradoxes to try to think through these ideas, omnipresence, omnipotence. Here's an example of a paradox. You've probably heard this question or a question like it. Could God make a rock too heavy for him to lift? Now, if there's a kind of rock that God can't make, then how can he be all-powerful, right? But on the other hand, if there's a kind of rock that he can make and he can't lift it, then how can he be all-powerful? So it seems as if it must be logically impossible for God to be all-powerful because either he's incapable of making a rock so heavy that he can't lift it, or he's incapable of lifting the rock that he made. So it doesn't seem to work. But of course, if you stop and think about what's going on there, we're, we're, we're doing language games, right? We're treating the revelation of Scripture as if it was just abstract ideas. Now, the Bible, when it talks about who God is and it reveals his attributes, it's not just giving us abstract ideas. It's telling us specific things about God's character. So what it means for God to be God. There are attributes that flow from his identity, from his godhood. Now, if you think about what it means to be God, uh, one of the things it means is that there's nothing greater than God. Right? There's, there's no one more powerful than God. There's no one who's out farther than God can reach. No one is beyond God's power or God's presence, because in order to be that way, they'd have to be greater than God, and nothing can be greater than God just by the very nature of who God is. So there are no limits that can be imposed on God. So there's no limit that can be imposed on where he is, and there's no limit that can be imposed on what he can do, because where he is and what he does flow from who he is, and he is God. And omnipresence and omnipotence are part of his divine character. Character is interesting because it reflects who you are. Character is difficult to change. God doesn't somehow decide one day, I, I don't want to be godlike anymore because godlike is who God is. So omnipresence, like omnipotence, is part of what it means to be God, and God by nature is never not God. So not only are there not places in the creation where God isn't present, but by definition, God must be presence in all places because he is God, and that's the nature of God. Having said that, though, the fact is, in the Bible, there are times where we're told that God withdraws himself or, or turns away, sometimes from people, sometimes from places. What does that mean? Because it does sound as if what it's saying is that God is, is leaving, that God is no longer present. 
when the Bible speaks of this turning away, what we need to understand this as is a withdrawal of God's favor or a withdrawal of God's blessing. So he's no longer looking in favor upon that place or upon that person. Now, he's still present, but his relationship to that thing, that place, that person has definitely changed. Now, what does it mean to have God withdraw his favor or blessing or to turn away like this? Well, it's a terrible thing because all creation needs and depends upon the favor of God in order to thrive, in order to have its being. So when God turns away, that's a kind of judgment that brings punishment. It brings destruction upon whatever God has has turned away from. So this is a, a great question because it really requires us to keep two separate ideas in mind. First, the idea of God's presence everywhere without exception. And secondly, the fact that God can and does withdraw his favor on ungodliness, on unholiness, and that this withdrawal results in punishment. This is a fascinating question to think about and to reflect on, and I'm grateful for Noah for asking this time's big question. Now, before we close, let's take a look at a few fun questions. Here's a question from Sam. Do you consider yourself mature or immature? Well, Sam, generally speaking, I'd like to think of myself as mature, or at least as semi-mature, but other people sometimes beg to differ. Now remember, if we're talking about maturity in faith, there is a way that you can gauge maturity in a way that you can focus on greater maturity. So greater maturity in faith usually comes from greater knowledge or greater action. So where we see people understanding uh, more profoundly, the the doctrine of Scripture, that's a kind of maturity in faith. And when we see people showing the fruit of the Spirit, when we see them loving one another, sacrificing for one another, loving their enemies, that too is a sign of maturity. And when we see that kind of maturity in people, it's a good thing to emulate. Now, here's a question from Caleb. Why do you say sister churches when you refer to other churches? Well, Caleb, in the Bible, the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. Now, because of that, when we refer to the church or to local churches, we often use female descriptive language. Just like two sisters who are in the same family, two local churches have a familial bond to one another, and that's why we call them sister churches. If we called them brother churches, they'd be fighting all the time. Here's a great question from Amara to wrap things up. Amara asks, what's your favorite part of our worship service? Well, I love every part of our worship service, even the sermon. 
But if I had to choose one thing in our worship service that I really cherish, I think I would probably focus on the Lord's Supper, on communion. That's probably my favorite part. And the reason is that that is the place in our service where we kind of act out the gospel that we've just heard preached and that we've just confessed our faith in. When we come together at the table, we see our union with Christ pictured for us. And I think it's something beautiful that we should all cherish. And that's why I'm going to say, at least in this case, that is my favorite part of our worship service. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.